Increased stress is linked with teeth grinding and clenching, which causes poor sleep, jaw pain, and headaches. But did you know that one in every four adults grind or clench their teeth while they're sleeping? A Remy Custom Night Guard can protect your teeth from grinding and clenching, while saving you hundreds of dollars compared to getting one at the dental office. Use code GUARD20 for 20% off your order. Visit shopremy.com now. S-H-O-P-R-E-M-I dot com. Before we get started, I have a quick favor. I've been self-funding the Finding Genius podcast for five years now. I've done over 3,000 episodes. And as you can see on YouTube, we're up over a million views on the channel, which is fantastic. The next thing I really want to push on is to get up to 10,000 subscribers. Because once we do, we'll be able to put a donate button and uh, we'll be able to solicit donations uh, to help keep the podcast running and to also get the Finding Genius Foundation moving along. We have a big project studying anxiety, depression, and PTSD, and working on a product to help people overcome these problems uh, because I've seen them explode recently after the, uh, you know, the last two years of the whole virus situation. So if you would, please subscribe to the podcast. That would help us tremendously. Give us a thumbs up. And check in the description for Buy Me a Coffee. It's about five bucks. If you could buy me a coffee, I'd really appreciate it. It would help keep the channel going, and I love coffee. Thank you. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have uh, Noelle Patno. Uh, she's a microbiome scientific educator. She has a PhD and uh, she had a, a BS in chemical engineering from Stanford with honors and distinction and a PhD in molecular metabolism and nutrition from University of Chicago. Uh, she did a doctoral thesis that looked at bacterial stress in intestinal organoid, which modeled uh, inflammatory bowel disease. So talk to her today. Noel, thank you for coming. You're welcome. Thanks for having me, Richard. Yeah, tell me a little bit about your, your background and how you ended up where you're at today. Well, there are a variety of factors. I was interested in nutrition from the influence of my family. I was strong in math and science, so I pursued chemical engineering. I didn't want to go to medical school because there wasn't as much of a nutrition emphasis. But as as an engineer in pharmaceutical and biomedical device world, I ended up having my own health condition. So I experienced cancer unexpectedly and made my own treatment decision there, documenting oh, wow. it with what, 11 what kind of, uh, I had thyroid cancer. What kind of cancer oh, did wow. you have? I had colon cancer, actually. Wait. I'm sorry. Were you, were you able to, uh, you said you came up with, I don't know if you can describe it, but uh, was your protocol like the standard of care or was it different or unique to you? It was unique. So actually, I had an intestinal blockage. We didn't know what was wrong. So when they did the emergency surgery, afterwards, I found out that what was the blockage was a, a tumor. And then they wanted to recommend adjuvant chemotherapy which was part of the standard of care, but also not exactly because mine was high risk stage two. It didn't, I didn't have any lymph node involvement. As you know, like lymph node involvement is 
typically with stage three. And it would have been like standard of care for stage three. So mine was kind of on the border there. But I just really struggled with using chemotherapy when they couldn't detect any cancer in my body. You know, it was more of a hypothesis that there was any remaining cancer. I I mean, I'd be curious to hear your story, but basically I researched and then I wrote 11 pages and documented 25 references and said, you know, this is what I'm going to do. How did you deal with your situation? Well, with mine, I was lucky because you could use uh, radioactive iodine. So I had a thyroidectomy and what they call like a lateral neck dissection. So I got a bunch of lymph nodes on one side of my neck. But again, luckily, this thyroid, uh, you know, tissue absorbs iodine. They, um, they ended up giving me radioactive iodine and it looks like everything was okay. You know, on scans each year, it looks all right so far. So hopefully it'll be all right. That's great. Congratulations on your cancer survivorship. It's wonderful that the radioactive iodine is such a targeted therapy in that way. You know, many of these chemotherapies, although there are, there are many different kinds that some of them can be just much more systemic and poisonous across the whole body. Yeah. My mother passed away from endometrial cancer and she went the chemo route, which rarely seems to work. So, but, uh, I'm sorry. Well, I'm glad that. you were able to help yourself. Good. Yeah, I ended up going to, well, I talked to four different oncologists and I had three different complementary medical doctors I consulted and I ended up trying a variety of their supplements and protocols. And over coming months as I studied like what they were actually recommending to me, I learned the different levels of efficacy. But one of the things that I think is pretty widespread now vitamin D, right? So measuring your vitamin D levels and seeing if you're deficient in vitamin D, because that's so common, even in people who are otherwise potentially healthy, that vitamin D could be pretty low or even uh, deficient. And that was one thing that was pretty critical for me in in my recommendations, in my situation. Yeah. And I I didn't mean to, you know, to jump into the personal so deeply, but um, tell me if you would about your, your research today, what are you focused on right now? So I recently had a publication approved or accepted regarding prebiotics and fiber blend that impacted gastrointestinal health and impacted microbiota individuals with irregularity, constipation, or some kind of gastrointestinal problems. And I think what was most interesting about that whole process was just about how many things can go wrong in research and what you can learn from things that can go wrong. So it hasn't quite been published yet, so I won't go into too much detail about that, but I think we can still learn from from studies that don't necessarily show the strongest effects, but can show unique study designs with dose response, different doses being tested, and different durations of treatment, as well as a stealth monitoring technique. So using a smart cap to measure how much product did somebody actually consume, or at least give you a better proxy for consumption. I don't understand. What do you mean? So a smart cap is a patented technology that was shared with us for this clinical trial. And it had a humidity and temperature sensor on it and an accelerometer so so that it could measure each event of twisting the cap and then turning it upside down. And that's the way that individuals were instructed to take the cap off the container of their powdered resistant starch blend for consumption. So by then taking that data from the cap, this battery operated cap later, then we could track when did they when did that event of of that action of the cap occurring happen? And you could match it up to the days that they were actually supposed to consume the product. 
and then calculate the percentage of time that they opened the product as directed by the protocol, and then use that as a proxy to have a subset of individuals who actually complied with the probiotic, let's say 80%, not the probiotic, sorry, who actually complied with the protocol about 80% or so of the time. And then you could use that population's data to do your analysis rather than the whole group who may or may not have complied with the protocol. Remy Night Guards are designed for comfort. Remy sends you an at-home impression kit and has a team of in-house dental professionals to make you custom, comfortable night guards that you'll forget you're wearing, all for 80% less than the cost at the dental office. Visit shopremy.com to get yours now and take an extra 20% off your order with the code GUARD20 at checkout. Remember, that's S-H-O-P-R-E-M-I.com. Okay, I don't understand. You're, you're looking in the track to see if patients are actually using this particular powder for for what what issues or what reasons? Right. So the protocol was that this group of individuals who were determined to be eligible for the study had gastrointestinal symptoms. So they had either irregularity or diarrhea or constipation or some kind of gastrointestinal problem, and, and that was their eligibility criteria. And then the primary outcome of the study was: Does this Resistant starch blend, which was a blend of potato and banana resistant starches and an apple pectin, does it impact their gastrointestinal symptoms and does it impact their fecal short-chain fatty acids and the microbiome? So those were the questions. But we know that sometimes there isn't 100% compliance in a study, right? And even if they return the product at the end of the study, they could dump out the product before, before turning it in if you just weigh the product powder. So, oh, okay. I see. So to try to add in a level of certainty that they were taking the product when they said they were, like tracking it on the log, we had these caps to use sort of a stealth monitoring technique. When did they open the container of the, the pro- product, the powder? And did that match up with the days that we expected them to open the powder and use it? Did you tell them you were doing this or you did it? Or did you tell them like, hey, we're going to be monitoring you? We're not going to tell you how so that uh, you don't try to confound it, but we're going to be monitoring you. Like, how did you do it? We told them that they had to open the cap that way and, um, you know, t- turn it upside down because it was part of preserving the integrity of the product within. Uh, there, there was a temperature and humidity sensor in the cap, so it did monitor temperature and humidity. Um, but I think that there was there was at least one individual who was suspicious of that being like a tracking mechanism and did say, oh, I, I, I put the powder in bags one day and, and took it, you know, to travel. So, um, we did not, uh, disclose that, um, up front because otherwise that defeats the purpose of the ability of its but utility. I'm saying, like, right? There's a couple of ways you could do it. You could just say nothing and track them quietly, or you could tell them you're going to track them, but not tell them how, or you could, Tell them you're going to track them and tell them how. And I would just wonder what the outcome would be with those three. Yes, I think that'd be a little bit more of a psychological related experiment too, you know, that could be interesting. But we did, we did three different methods, right? So we had a dosing log where they were supposed to record when they took it and what they took it with because it also had to be taken cold because resistant starch can break down if you heat it up. So they could mix the powder in something cold like yogurt or milk or juice, something cold. And then, so we have them record that as well. And then 
they also had to return the product. So we weighed the product. So we basically had three measures. We had the days that they recorded that they took it. And some people actually said, oh, I forgot. So we have that data from the dosing log. Then we have the product weight because we weighed the material before and after. And then we have the smart cap data. And you can see a significant drop off of, you know, percentage product used based on those three different measurements. Well, what does that mean? What, what happened? Did people use it less as time went on or did they forget more or what happened? Well, the drop off was the dosing log could show anywhere from like 90 to 100 percent compliance. Whereas like with the smart cap usage, you could see like as low as like 60 percent or so, somewhere around there in terms of how much it was used. There are some, there were, were some, you know, challenges with that technology, right? If, if the battery somehow went dead, the study went on for a period of time, but overall it was not as high as the dosing log would report. You know, the dosing log is self-reported. It could be BS or it could be true. Exactly. Exactly why we used the smart caps. Well, what did you notice? Did you notice that people complied a lot at first or was it low compliance and then a couple of days in it, it jumped up or like what was the curve look like? So we, we reported on the average percentages in the publication, which will be coming out. And you can see in the we, in the table we have that. But we didn't, because this was not like the main outcome of the study, we just used that to show more of the difference between was there a significant difference in like the fecal short chain fatty acids or the gastrointestinal symptoms as a result of just looking at the full population or looking at the subpopulation that had more compliance than, than the rest of but them. This, this could be a problem because let's say it's a 10 day protocol and mm-hmm. a certain number of people just, they forgot the first day or, you know, they did three days and then you saw like, maybe I'm just making this up. You see a dip and people stop for two days and they go, Oh, I forgot. And then they get back on it. That could alter the experiment a lot. So just a percentage I could see is helpful, but you probably also want to look at each day of the experiment, like what happened, because there may be things in there that confound the results. You know, Maybe the short chain fatty acids for the people that, let's say, skipped and started again, if anyone did that, would be very different from someone that did it but stopped the last two days, like two days earlier. That could be the case, but we just didn't have a large enough sample size to to break that up for everyone, right? So we had just two week intervals that we were measuring. So we all, and we didn't have fecal short chain fatty acid measurements for every single day, right? So that's why we just took the average of the two weeks versus, you know, the actual outcome measured at the two weeks. It would be a pretty expensive and involved experiment to do, you know, every single day that they took it and then try to correlate whether or not they took it that day, and then what their change was in their fecal short-chain fatty acids. Oh, I mean, a system that maybe in future, I'm just apologize to give it unasked for advice, but um, what if you set up a system where you texted the people every day, hey, have you taken your stuff today? You know, they say yes, no, they just reply Y or N, and then, yeah, you know, how do you feel today type of thing? Or maybe give them a tip or uh, an explanation of, did you know that taking this stuff does uh, X, Y, Z? Yes, I did. Help compliance. Those, yes, those are also some strategies that I've seen observed and used in, in other types of studies. And I did, I did a little experiment with text reminders for a different study that, that we didn't publish where we, we did, we did say like, did you take your shake? Did you take your morning shake? Reply why with yes, you know? So I, we did do that and we, we did see pretty high compliance. That was a very small study, but we didn't actually 
get the product back from them and weigh it or use other secondary like objective measures, you know, in other ways you could also imagine like they could take a picture or they could even take a video of themselves taking it. And that would be even more monitoring or surveillance. It's, it's, there are many ways to be creative about remote monitoring when you don't have individuals in a, living in a free society, like actually in a lab, you know, where you can videotape them the whole time and everything that they're doing and control them, just like you're, you're controlling. There are, but there are some studies where they actually do that and people do stay overnight or, or for a period of time and the, all of their behavior is monitored. Those are different kinds of studies. All right. Well, what did you notice about this study? Uh, the data was useful. Well, there are, there are many outcomes. I think the what was essential for the smart cap, the smart cap data was that we saw a difference in the sleep disturbance score with the smart cap data that we did not see without the smart cap data, and that's just goes to show that using more compliance monitoring systems in the future can help us find increase the the kinds of findings that we could have that we otherwise might not uncover without the monitoring systems. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Okay, I mean, what did you notice about the short-chain fatty acids and the other endpoints that you were measuring? There were improvements in gastrointestinal symptoms. Specifically, there were increasing um, improvements in the diarrhea score with increasing doses of the proprietary resistant starch blend that and that was statistically significant the other gastrointestinal symptoms did improve over time in all of the groups and the the fecal short chain fatty acids did not change significantly but there's a lot of interesting caveats there so first of all the Short chain fatty acid test that we used is not necessarily widespread use in the research literature, so we can't compare it to other studies that were like this, but it is used in the practice of functional medicine practitioners. And the particular company that has that particular test has a range, a reference range, and what they consider healthy for fecal short chain fatty levels, according to their standards, was actually the region in which the fecal short-chain fatty acids stayed throughout the study. So according to their standard test, there wasn't any room for improvement at baseline for the fecal short-chain fatty acids. So the fact that there wasn't a statistically significant change in those fecal short-chain fatty acids could mean a variety of things, right? It's it's not comparable to some of these other studies where resistant starch has shown an increase in fecal short-chain fatty acids, but also those resistant starch studies had higher doses, like more than 20 grams, whereas our resistant starch levels were 5 grams to like 15 grams per day, depending on the dose that you're looking at. And we went two to six weeks. So other studies have sometimes been like four weeks, uh, 12 weeks. So there's just a variety and diversity of different types of studies out there. And it just goes to show that there's a lot of factors that influence fecal short chain fatty acids and people's responses to prebiotics and fibers. Well, so I, it just seems like a, a doomed study. I mean, why not? Can you, can you count the number of bacteria or the, you know, the species variability? I mean, there's got to be other metrics. We did see. SCFA is in a certain spot. We did see other interesting findings like the microbiome changes of the Acromantia and Fecalibacterium were associated at the end of the study with resistant starch blend, whereas the, 
they were not associated with the potato starch alone. So that suggests that this particular blend of apple, banana, and potato fibers somehow promoted Acromantian bacterium, which have been keystone species. Well, the species level would be Acromantium eosinophila and Fecalibacterium pretznitsi, to be specific. And they've been identified as key biomarkers of microbiome health, so to speak, because they're at higher levels in healthy individuals versus many diseases like irritable bowel syndrome, colorectal cancer, inflammatory bowel disease, metabolic diseases for Acromantia specifically, like diabetes, obesity, um, some liver diseases, etc. So it's indicative of other studies that show that fiber intake resistance and resistant starch intake, higher levels of, of those necessary dietary components are associated with benefits for those types of diseases as well. It's consistent. Okay. So is this a resistant starch a prebiotic food for the, ba- the bacteria you wanted to encourage the grow to work? Yes. So The definition of a prebiotic is that a substrate that is utilized by the endogenous bacteria in the host and confers a health benefit on the host. So, And resistant starch is considered to be a a prebiotic in that way. It's not necessarily specifically utilized, so there could be some debate around like how selective it is. The amylolytic bacteria are the types of bacteria that can degrade resistant starch because they have the enzymes to do so. Has anyone uh, looked at um, before and after epigenetic epigenetic mark changes based on um, you know giving someone prebiotics and no probiotics? Epigenetic, in, you know, in our in our cells. Epigenetic, you know, in our cells. Yeah, now, yeah, now you'd have um, you know more bacteria, perhaps different bacteria that are proliferating if you give them the right prebiotic. So I know they're interacting at least in some ways with uh, trading resources, you know, the short chain fatty acids. So maybe, it, it, I don't know, maybe another way to look at it would be, maybe it's way off base, I don't know, but if there's epigenetic change in the cells of, let's say, the gut or the colon, maybe that would be another way to correlate, you know, what's going on with the bacteria. In addition to the levels of bacteria, in addition to their metagenomics, in addition to the products they create, et cetera. I just wondered if it's another way to uh, to get a window into what's going on. Yeah, well, the more the more things you measure, the the greater chance of having a false discovery rate. But if you just had one study that you just looked at epigenetics, or you just looked at, let's say, the impact of some dietary intervention, whether we're looking at prebiotics or maybe you're looking at other substances and how they affect the, the bacteria, it could it could be interesting to see how does that affect the genes, the genetic expression of the cells inside the human. Uh, I do know, like specifically of I think it's probably, it was probably an in vitro study where the specific probiotic lact- lactobacillus, now lactiplantibacillus plantarum 299v, affected the mucin expression. So in that way, it affected how the host, the, the human cells produced mucus. So mm. um, that's just one example. I'm, I'm sure there's many other studies out there where you could look at how is the bacteria specifically interacting with the host cells to, and in that case, you know, produce mucus to provide the strengthening of the intestinal filial barrier. But in terms of like epigenetics, if you're talking about methylation, hypomethylation, formal methylation marks on the DNA of the host, I'm not familiar with those exact studies showing are people looking at what is the bacteria doing to those epithelials. I'm not familiar with that particular niche research. It would be, yeah, I don't know if anyone's looking at that. I mean, you could also look at, uh, I mean, I guess a lot of different things. Yeah, they're not, you know, the exosome portion, 
you know, the well, the plasmid production of the bacteria, the exosome production of the cells, but that would be, uh, I guess, if we have far afield. Um, so what do you feel like, what was, what were the useful results from this study and what uh, kind of questions does it lead you to work on now? Well, I think there's a lot of questions as a result of this study. Do we, I think one thing is five grams of resistant starch is, is probably not enough. And that's actually within the range of the three to nine grams per day of resistant starch that is estimated to be the regular intake from your diet in America and in Australia and the UK from some other reports. But but you that, that is also consistent with the fact that you know, 14 grams per 1,000 kilocalories per day is usually the general recommendation for adequate intake. Mm -hmm. But what I think there's more questions about, like, what is the variety of fibers? What is the variety of prebiotics? Because a lot of these studies are just looking at one single ingredient. So can we look at more multi-ingredient blends? And can we affect the diversity of the bacteria as a whole, right? Because consistent with the American Gut Project, where they had 30 different vegetables per week, intake associated with the diversity of the gut bacteria, can you, how about we make a blend like that and then look at whether that's going to impact the diversity of the gut microbiome and overall health. But I'm more interested also in like microbiome therapeutics and what is the microbiome doing? So can we target the microbiome and its activity, its function, like the gases it's producing, the metabolites it's producing, what it, and how those actions are affecting the human cells, whether it's um, mm. the intestinal epithelial cells or, you know, if they're producing gas, you're, you've got your abdominal bloating, gas, etc. And then what from the bacterial metabolites are being absorbed into your bloodstream. So there are, there are people studying tab bacterial metabolites in your blood. And then how, how does that impact the processes of your overall health? Could that affect cancer development? Could that affect autoimmune diseases? There's always this concept out there in the functional medicine world about leaky gut and needing to repair the mm. gut so yeah. that the, the gastrointestinal barrier <laughs> is strong enough to prevent what whatever could be then influencing downstream diseases, rheumatoid arthritis, anything that could be more global and autoimmune diseases like Hashimoto's thyroiditis have even been trailed back to the gut and immune yeah. function in the gut. So there's just a lot more questions. I am talking to multiple potential collaborators right now, and some exploring some different research questions. Well, there's also redundancy, you know, a given strain or species, well, multiple different strains or species usually can make the same metabolite. But I guess it's kind of like a job center of the gut. You got jobs to do, you know, things to be made. And certain bacteria will show up if there's need for that and it's not being fulfilled. And again, it doesn't seem like one bacteria is responsible for just making one thing. It, it seems like interchangeable, like uh, multiple different strains could do that job. Right. There's many different types of bacteria that can produce butyrate. There's many butyrate producers. Right. There's, there's many other bacteria that can produce um, lactate, uh, the lactic acid producing bacteria, et cetera. So how, how do we encourage the right mix of the different functions so we have a healthy intestinal ecosystem. Just like, you know, in a regular society, we need to have doctors, engineers, trash collectors, plumbers, etc. We need to have all those different functions present for healthy functioning. But has anyone cataloged who does what? There's some extent of that, right? There's still many uncharacterized bacteria just because anaerobic bacteria in particular are hard to characterize. 
but there are many characterizations of bacteria out there and it's still ongoing. That's how they identify new bacterial strains for new probiotic candidates. They'll screen them for different functionalities, whether they have the capacity to produce different metabolites, whether they have the capacity to produce bacteriosins and affect the growth of other bacteria, whether they, you know, adhere better to the intestinal epithelial cells versus other bacteria. So yes, they're there's constant work being done there to characterize bacteria in the gut as well as bacteria that may not be in the gut that you might want to introduce into the gut for beneficial properties. Yeah, and also something, I mean, I just made this up, but I call it bacterial economics. Does mm-hmm. anyone know, you know, if I'm a bacteria and I, I produce a short chain fatty, I, like, I produce butyrate, what's my exchange rate for a sugar molecule? Do I want one to one, three to one, five to one, one to three? Who sets that and how do you think that's arbitrary? So, so who's most efficient? Yeah, that's interesting. But I think if they have the same genetic structure for conversion, I would expect that to be relatively the same. But if you're looking at, you know, the bacteria that are, there's also the um, crossfeeding to look into. So, and, and the competition, right? So you can look at them in isolation, but they may behave differently in groups and when they're competing for resources. And some bacteria may be consuming some metabolites and then producing other metabolites that the other bacteria consume. And you get these loops, right? So you have, for example, certain lactobacilli and bifidobacteria producing acetate. And then that acetate being consumed by like fecalobacterium pretensi, for example, which then will um, produce butyrate. And that could be consumed by the goblet cells of the intestinal to produce mucin. And then mucin maybe fed acromancia mucinophila is mucinophila because it loves the mucus it's it's feeding off that mucin and then it's producing acetate which you're back at the cycle so you have these interesting dynamics of bacteria that's a little bit more symbiotic but you can also have bacterial warfare uh, with the bacteriosins the peptides where they're where they're suppressing each other's growth instead of collaborating with each other's growth yeah then if some are in a biofilm some are free living there's all kinds of different changes that happen when they're in biofilm form. So I guess suffice to say, it's like super, super complicated. Yeah, we have a lot more to learn when we have, you know, trillions of, of, of microorganisms who, you know, are also just difficult to study because they're so small and um, they, they get damaged and changed when we excrete them and then when we do all these manipulations to study them. Without like losing your mind, is anyone looking at like the phageome and associating that with the presence or absence of you know certain bacteria? Yeah, when I was in graduate school, there was somebody specifically in our lab looking at the virome, looking at all the viruses there. You could look at the yeah the viruses in the bacteria, the bacteriophages. There's a company, at least one company out there that's selling phage as like a prebiotic. So there are definitely interesting studies in in that area as well. Gene transfer could potentially also affect how bacteria behave. So that's another thing, function to screen for mm. in that line of research. Yeah, there's a lot to do. So what, what are some uh, experiments or questions that you think you're going to get some some answers to maybe in the near future? Anything come to mind? or? Well, like I said, I'm, I still haven't developed the next project question yet. Um, I'm in discussion with a few different collaborators there. You know, for example... Fecal metabolites, I think, would be an interesting diagnostic uh, biomarker. Maybe we could associate 
some more objective biomarkers, whether it's in the feces or elsewhere, to help with IBS, right? Irritable bowel syndrome seems to be such a catch-all for so many different problems, whether it's post-infectious diarrhea or small intestinal bacterial overgrowth or or even food intolerance. It sometimes gets categorized in that catch-all IBS. So I think better objective biomarkers to distinguish those categories could be helpful. And then we could figure out, well, do you need more of an herbal treatment? Do you need more of a probiotic or prebiotic treatment? I think that's an area that needs a finer resolution of discovery. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, there is a ton to know. And I guess that's probably why computer modeling, supercomputer modeling is going to be needed because it's just so horrifically complicated. You know, how's anyone supposed to figure it out? Right. And our models are only as good as the input that we put into them. So we need to get more information to have that good input so that we can build a good model and then be confident that that model is actually relevant to what's happening in reality. And then we can go from there to try to uh, hypothesize new interventions. I mean, this is, uh, it's getting graphic and gross, but, you know, in someone's colon, they go to the bathroom, it's empty, then it starts to fill up again. So is there a, is there a name for that cycle? And how do the bacteria live in that kind of cyclical, you know, building up full, it all goes away, and then it starts again from scratch environment? Does anyone characterize like what they go through and how they change as that, you know, as like feces develop in the colon, the sigmoid colon, let's say, and, you know, when it fills up and then when it empties? Does that cycle have a name? Yeah, well, there there have been some circadian rhythm studies, right? So, they, you know, you have your, your total body clock and then you have sort of clocks for each of the organs. And it appears that there's kind of a clock around the bacterial community, the ecosystem. So it does change over time, over that sort of cycle, as you call it. I think, you know, just based on our anatomy and the whole process, it would be very challenging to sample throughout, but there is, there is this technology as a kind of capsule that exists now that you can consume and then it can open at a certain time point in the gastrointestinal tract and then take a sample and then close and then come out. So if we could use technology like that, then we could try to sample throughout the human's gastrointestinal tract. And if, if the person like took that capsule at those different time points that you're talking about, then we could design an experiment where we could sample the same location using that capsule, but at different time points during that person's day. And if we can then correlate it with what they ate and how long after they ate in a standardized way, then I think we could get at that question of, of how those bacterial communities are changing in that compartment over time and given that defined standardized meal that would be an interesting experiment to run hmm. okay um any other uh, uh major questions that you think you're you're hot on the trail of with your research or is it again it's just like a slow incremental kind of step-by-step to affair well personally i'm writing on um working on writing my cancer treatment decision in a way that i'd like to try to help other people who may be having difficulty with their cancer treatments decisions. So that's my personal project, which is consuming more of my time now. But the, the, the broader research questions that you're talking about, like I said, um, I, I think there's, 
we could probably just keep talking for hours and hours about all the different interesting questions with the microbiome and gastrointestinal health and then how, you know, the inner workings of our intestine impact other parts of our body. So at some point, I hope to collaborate another clinical trial that will start having some questions answered in, in that vein. And I'm also aware of certain ketogenic diet and microbiome studies. So you might want to be on the lookout for something like that as well. Well, very good. Uh, Noel, where can people find out more about the protocol that you developed for your own cancer if you do publish it? I don't know if it's on a personal website or, you know, professional blog. And where can people find out more about your work in general? So for an email address, I have info at drpatno.com. So that's I-N-F-O at drpatno.com. The drpatno.com website is under construction. Um, I also have a LinkedIn profile. And then I have an Instagram account where I occasionally post interesting microbiome and probiotics research. My personal story, like I said, I'm working on it. So stay tuned. Okay, very good. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I know the questions are like really, really difficult and no one really knows, but uh, you fielded them well. So thank you for coming. Thanks, Richard. It was my pleasure. Before you go, make sure to protect your smile from teeth grinding and clenching with a Remy Custom Night Guard. Visit shopremy.com to get yours now and take an extra 20% off your order with the code GUARD20 at checkout. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.